Welcome to the Global Movements podcast. This is the first podcast in what aims to be a monthly look at recent political developments around the world, with a particular focus on countries going through election periods and what those elections might mean for the country and the region in which the country is situated. I'm James Marriott. I'm the former Assistant Secretary General of the International Democrat Union. The International Democrat Union is a global network of centre-right political parties that includes most of the world's major conservative and classical liberal and centre-right political parties, such as UK Conservatives, CDU Germany, US Republicans, and BJP of India. Today I'm talking to Rob Thomas. Rob is a writer and political analyst based in the UK. He has 25 years' experience writing about, working in, and travelling across Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and the Caucasus. Rob has acted as an advisor to the International Office of the UK Conservative Party and worked as a senior research analyst at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Rob is the author of the critically praised work Serbia under Milosevic, Politics in the 1990s. He is currently co-authoring a book examining the impact of Brexit on European politics. Rob, welcome. Hello. Rob, so it's quite an interesting week in European politics. We've had the Italian earthquake. Um, we've had the major speech from Theresa May on where she sees the Brexit negotiations going. Germany's finally got a government together. And also in the Balkans, there have been elections in Serbia. So we'll try and cover as much of that as we can. Uh, we're also looking forward to the uh, Russian elections, which I'm sure will be a big surprise for everyone. So, Rob, do you want to give me some thoughts on how this week has gone? Yes, I think I think we can. First thing we can look at is um, Italy and the elections there, which have were sort of major major advances by 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 the by by star movement, quite beyond what they might have been expected yet in looking at what they were polling in, during 2017. Um, you had then in 2017, you had neck and neck with the Democratic Party. But when the polling took place last Sunday, that you see that surging, surging forward to a large percent, um, on 32% of the vote. And, and they did well at the expense of both the, um, the Democratic Party, which is the Social Democratic Party, uh, and also the centre-right Berlusconi uh, bloc, who, who was, I mean, Berlusconi was hailed as Europe's saviour in this election, and, and, and that didn't manifest, did it? No, um, I think if you look at Five, five Star, they have um, polled well because the other parties have collapsed rather than any, any intrinsic um, effectiveness of their, of their own cam- campaign. Um, in local government, where they've been, they call, held some major cities since the local election 2016, their record has been to say, say the least, Apache. There's been a lot of internal dissension within Five Star, and the electoral system, which was designed for this last election, re- really work, worked against them. But they still did be- very well. And I think what, if you want to account for this, you're really looking for the failure of the established left party, parties and the established right in, in, in Italy, and the um, Five Star coming through to dominate the centre of the middle with this large chunk of vote. I mean, the thing that people reach around is for Five Star is a protest vote. They've consistently ruled out being in coalition with any other parties, though the reality of grabbing power may change that. But what do they stand for? I mean, that's, that's the, 
key question in a way. They're, they're actually quite hard to define ideologically, but they're often described as being being populist. But look at populist movements across across Europe. You can usually define them in the Podemos in, in, in Spain or Syriza in Greece. You could look at them as left-wing um, protest movements, or you can look at, say, the Front National in, in France, and that's the party of the right, and the AFD in Germany, populist party of the right. Five Star are much more neb nebulous and, and hard, hard to define. Um, in, some of their rhetoric on, on, on immigration, for instance, and in their former leader, Beppe Grillo's emphasis on strong leadership, they look right-wing. On other respects, in, ter in terms of their ideological roots, they're very much on the left, the, the radical green left of, left of, of politics. Um, partly, I mean, that's sort of kind of a weakness, but also a kind of a strength in that they can appeal across, across the spectrum. Their sort of in, indistinctness can allow them to get votes from all over the place. You talked about their record in government. They've been in power in Rome, I understand, and, and a few other places. When in government, what kind of policies have they enacted? Are they raising taxes, cutting taxes? Uh, what are they doing? In, in government in, in, in Rome, I mean, particularly in Rome, I mean, they've been, the government, their record has been characterised by a certain degree of administrative incompetence. Rome would be a difficult city for, for anyone to, to govern effectively. Right. But in terms of how they've... Um, how they've been able to establish themselves. It's not been a, ter a terribly good, good, good record. Um, and that what they, in terms of what, what they're, they're sort of planning to do, uh, or what they said they'll do, they, they, would look, they look more, of, more, on, more on the left of the political spectrum. Um, and I think there's been a degree of scepticism about some of their economic policy. It remains to be seen whether they'll have the opportunity to put those policies in, in, into effect. I mean, they're line taken in the past, particularly under the leadership of Beppe Grillo, has been that they would reject coalitions with other, other parties, other, particularly other established parties. Is that uh, simply the usual business of uh, not wanting to say who you get into bed with before the election because you want to maximise the amount of votes for you? Uh, or, or is this a, a genuine commitment that they... they don't want anything to do with established parties. I think it has been very much part part of their identity. I mean, there's always, a, as you say, there's always an element of, of not wanting to say who you'll work, work with before the election amongst all parties. I think it's slightly more than that with Five Star. They have, it's part of their identity as political outsiders. Um, however, now they've done so well, um, they may find it quite hard to... Follow, continue to follow that line and carry it through. And their new, new leader who's taken over from, from, from Beppe Grillo, Luigi Di Maio, um, who's, Beppe Grillo has sort of taken a bit of a backseat. Um, he's been much more pragmatic, and in some of the statements he's made over the last few days has suggested that Five Star would be ready to talk about coalition deals, though quite who they do those deals with is, is not quite clear at the moment. Why do you think that they did do so much better than expected? I think it's a failure, failure of, of, of the, the, the centre-left um, and the centre-right. Centre-left under Matteo Renzi for the flawed campaign. I think Matteo Renzi made a comeback following uh, his resignation after the referendum of 2016. Um, felt like a failed politician, and because he was a failed politician, he was effectively a failed candidate for, for the centre-left. 
on the right, a lot, lot of made was made in the media of uh, Silvio, Silvio Berlusconi's comeback in, in, in politics. But I think his comeback was more, more apparent than, than, than real. Uh, Forza Italia is much diminished by, by, by these elections. Uh, and even during the, during the election campaign prior to the actual voting, in terms of the themes being pursued on, on, on the right, Forza Italia was very much following in the wake of the, of the more radical League Party with their, their emphasis on, on, on immigration. And even the fact that Forza Italia and the only real centre-right party was relying on Silvio Berlusconi, who's in his 80s now, showed, said something about the weakness of, of this right. They haven't got a, a younger, more effective, effective leader. The the Northern League, or uh, just the League as I believe they're now called, uh, they don't seem to be very happy with the uh, Berlusconi pro-Europeanism that he manifested in this election after flip-flopping various times. And do you think it's a question that they did better because they did take a anti-Brussels line whereas Berlusconi was apparently more well-received by Brussels. I think this is a bit important in that they, um, there was an emphasis in some of the media reporting of, of the Italian election. They t- always talked of the, of the right or the centre-right as if they were one block, but there were the, these um, clear distinctions between, between the parties, between Berlusconi, Forza Italia and the League. I think that, I think the League... Um, while their greater Euroscepticism may have been part of their success, I think I think it's probably their more radical line on immigration, uh, which if people if people bought into the anti-immigrant message, they they're more likely to vote for the League than for Berlusconi. He was coming with the same messages, but tempered by by being part of the establishment and having these these um, being part of the sort of European mainstream. How much do you think that that is uh, seen in Italy as this is a problem which Germany created for Italy? I mean, they've got up to half a million people roaming around the streets and the countryside of Italy. Uh, These are people from North Africa and and also from sub-Saharan Africa uh, for the main part and are unlikely to fit into the official asylum uh, system. And therefore, the League made this commitment to round them up and deport them all. Berlusconi didn't go that far, but certainly was very clear on the uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that he used, yeah. but saw this in terms of a European solution, whereas the, the League said that this should be an Italian fix for an, uh, uh, may not be a problem created by Italy, in their view, but certainly one that Italy needs to deal with. I mean, certainly, certainly um, the League has gone a lot further in its um, Eurosceptic rhetoric. I mean, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of the Italian parties sound critical of Europe, but when you look at how far they're prepared to go in terms of actual policy, um, it's never that, that far. And the Five Star unpacked their promise for a referendum on the, on the currency union. Uh, they, they were originally committed to holding a referendum and leaving the currency union. Uh, if they do form a government, and we'll talk about how that might happen, do you think that they are going to push 
back against the euro or do you think they're going to try and do a deal in Brussels to, to change the euro? I think that, that illustrates um, the, sort of the limitations of five-star rhetoric and policy in that they, they were not so much anti-Europe as anti-euro anti and then even they even backed, backed, backed off from that. What are the chances of them getting to government then? Um, I, I, well, I mean, you know, for five, five star, with, with given given their position, um, uh, they and the number of votes they've got, and the fact they're the largest party in any normal electoral calculation. If you're the largest party, you have pretty good <laughs> chances. You certainly would. I, I mean, even under this bizarre system, which I mean, the Italians already had a complicated system, and they managed to make it more complicated by trying to simplify it. So even un, even under the system, which apparently was not necessarily designed, but certainly uh, would would have stacked the odds against them, they they they've done better than expected. I mean, who who would be their their coalition partners? Yes, I mean, there's 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 I mean, so there's, there's, several, there's several options that they could go the road which they could take down. They they, they could. There's been talk of a sort of grand coalition which they they'd all all be, all be involved. There's been talk of of a populist coalition. Working, working with, with the league. Um, though I, that's that's again, it's a quite quite. There's, there's a degree of incompatibility between um, the league and league and five star. They wouldn't want to work work together. But that can be said of all, almost all of the parties parties in, in, involved. I don't think there's no there's no obvious easy partner partners partners for any any of them. The easiest people to work together would would be the Democratic Part Party and. Uh, and Berlusconi, because while they may have kind of political differences, they are both parties of the European sort of mainstream, unlike the League and Five Star, who are essentially insurgent parties. But they, they, they can't form a majority between them, can they? No, they'd have to find someone else. They, they, it, is it possible they, that need, would, would Five Star come on board with certain conditions? Um, that could happen. Um, but you're interested to see what they. I mean, they've not indicated they do that. Do that yet? It'll be interesting to see what conditions they could do. They could come up. Come up with. I think. Mean, I think this could. This could be a long, drawn-out process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, think, uh, yeah um, I mean, of course, of course, it's not. Actually, won't be the only place a long, drawn-out process of forming government. Um, even sort of places like Germany. I think we'll talk about it later. Have um, a reputation for for stability. Um, I've seen seen long government formations like where uh, this this is certainly the nature of of um, this is the nature of politics under under these kind of political systems, but the right didn't do as well as expected, uh, or the centre right, let's say. Uh, the no. I mean, if we call the League right, they're sort of radical right. Um, it's certainly in terms of the immigration policy, but perhaps in terms of their approach to Europe, which is. Uh, a, a departure from the, the the mainstream. So you've got the right split across the league and the centre pro-European right, but but still pretty hard on immigration, but perhaps not as hard as the league on immigration. They, they are um, in a position where they didn't do as well as expected. Berlusconi was meant to be the great white hope for the European Union to create a uh, pro-European government. That hasn't happened. 
where, where does that leave the right? I think it's leaves it, it leaves it in a very difficult position. I, I mean, one of the things about how I, I, I had problems with the way that the election was reported by, by some of them from the media, where they always refer to the centre-right bloc. But if you look at the looks of the three parties, not much of it was centre-right. I mean, really only Ber- Berlusconi and the League, which you know used to be a, a rather limited regional regional party. Um, had become has become the major the major part party, right? I, I mean, the league was specific, specifically set up on a basis of lazy Southerners are taking all our money and we want it back. Yeah, it's a uh, regional autonomous party. How did they? It's, how how, how well? Did, I'm not sure if you managed to look at the map of where they, they where they scored their highest, but did did they penetrate much into southern Italy? In, in terms of sort of. Dominant sort of getting the, the most vote. Not, not really. I think that the, what the, the pitch they made during the election was to break out their northern stronghold and establish them, themselves in the, in the south. But in terms of concentration of vote, they're still basically a northern northern party. That's where their, their strongholds still are. They failed to get get a sort of southern base, and it seems to be that the it was five star that succeeded establishing themselves so in, in, in the south. It again, was quite an unexpected. Um, element of the election that five stars votes have been quite widely spread it's one of been one of their weaknesses in previous elections okay uh, I think we need to move on if we're going to talk about some other things talking about headaches for the European Union uh, the other great uh, problem is uh, the United Kingdom trying to leave the European Union uh, on first uh, sorry it was second of March I believe Theresa May set out a speech where she highlighted what she wanted to achieve, set out the government position on Europe. How far do you think this will actually go towards ending conservative divisions on Europe? I think it was an important speech. I think it was a skillfully constructed speech. And what did what did it say? What what, what was what was the headline? I mean, it did two things. It, it's essentially. Defined Brexit in terms of key items of withdrawing from the single market, withdrawing from the customs union, not being subject to such a European Court of Justice jurisdiction, which are key important things for what we study the Brexiteers within the Conservative Party. But then having having defined uh, the UK as withdrawing from, from the European Union in those terms, it also looked on what then, then went on to look at what the relationship will be between the UK and the European Union in future, in terms of the UK maintaining its links and contacts with a range of organisations and agencies, in terms of what the relationship between between, uh, regulations from the EU and and the the UK would would be. And so you you had a sort of a a vision of the UK Leaving the EU, maintaining strong, strong contacts with the EU, and it was able. And in terms of the Conservative Party reaction, it was positive in terms of the Brexiteer wing. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg spoke quite, quite strong, in positive terms about it. And the more, more Remain focused, the, the element of the Conservative Party wanted to continue links with it, links with the European Union. People such as Nicky Morgan also spoke strongly 
strongly about it in good, 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 positive terms. So, at least for the time being, it seems to have worked in terms of unifying the concern. In a sense, so that's only the really sort of the, the first thing. Sure. Getting the Conservative Party unified is like sort of like the general lining up their soldiers for battle. They then have to move forward and see how their battle plan plan works. Yeah. And the whole negotiation process lies lies ahead. And of course, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Indeed, yes. And the enemy has responded to the speech uh, and in these terms. Uh, we classify Barnier, I suppose, as uh, as representing the enemy. Uh, what do you think his response was, and do, do you think that she'll get anything from this? Well, I, I think there were, there were various responses from, from, from the European Union. They, they raised some, some quite co- the positive, the quite cautious, to the rather sarcastic from people like Eva Hofstadt. Um, so it will have to have to see, but I, I think the process of negotiation will inevitably um, place strains on, on, on the unity um, achieved with the, with the speech. Um, I, I, think, I think it was a good speech, um, but it was also a very difficult speech. And once negotiations are, are taking place, the difficulties raised in maintaining that. Speech. Her aim for this speech was to unify the Conservative Party. It seems to have achieved that, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to make any progress with Brussels with this speech. I, I think the response from Brussels has, has been, been to sort of say that it, it provides detail. And there, and there were some sections of the speech which were, were very detailed, particularly when she was dealing with the, the specific organisations the UK wanted to make main, main contact with. But then there has been a sort of... The response from Brussels hasn't been entirely, entirely positive. There's been some sort of... Some have said that it's still cherry-picking or having taken eating at these various phrases which become part of the Brexit vocabulary. But it, I think it does provide provide a basis for um, going forward, just a matter of seeing how far that, that can be maintained. I think there will be difficulties there. Now, what's been very interesting this week, and I find this... Um, this almost gets into the, the the realm of conspiracy theory, but I think I think it's an interesting and quite plausible thought to have that the Labour Party, most of the members of Parliament, wish to maintain as close links as possible with the European Union, and perhaps wish to stop Brexit by making the settled solution so deeply pointless and unpalatable that there would be no real point in leaving the European Union and the whole thing. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn, who is a, a sceptical um, friend of Europe, as he, I think he described himself once, um, or he, ha- he has made or certainly allowed this significant shift in Labour Party policy so that now he wants to remain membership of a customs union, if not the customs union. Do you think that this flurry of activity um, is being coordinated with Brussels? And is the Labour Party dancing to Brussels' tune here? And if so, what do you think of the consequences of that are going to be for the Labour 
supporting uh, levers in the upcoming local elections that will be taking place in May? I've, I've not seen any evidence of any sort of coordination with, with Brussels. I mean, there have been meetings between the Labour Party, Corbyn has been over to Brussels, the party, um, but so have lots of people have been, have been over, over there to the whole stream of people meeting them at various points. No, I think it's more to do with the, the internal politi- politics of the, of the Labour Party. Um, they started off with this kind of constructive ambiguity whereby they, they maintained this position of leaving the customs union, leaving the single market, but also tried to, tried to sound critical of, of, of the government so they could appeal to, uh, they could be pro-Leave, but also appeal to, to pro-Remain supporters who formed quite a big chunk of their, their support, particularly as in the 2017 election. And the reason for that is that Labour have this major problem whereby most of their membership, most of their voters would probably be uh, in favour of staying within the European Union, but they have a large number of constituencies, particularly yeah. in the north of Britain, uh, which are heavily densely populated, where they are not at all in, uh, in, in favour of remaining within the, within the European Union, and, and most of those constituencies voted out. So they've been trying to deal with that problem, um, but reality is coming up fast in terms of where, where they're going to pitch themselves, and, and they, they've made a decision. Yes, I mean, they, they, and they have this sort of, these two groups of people, the majority of the, of the membership and, and voters who are pro-Remain, and, but also the, the key constituencies who are pro-Remain. And for a long time, they tried to sort of balance between the two. Now they've moved, moved towards a more, more defined situation. There, there was a strong campaign with the Labour Party to, to change their policy towards mem- membership of the Customs Union. You said the last two, two weeks, Jeremy Corbyn has, has moved to align himself, himself with that movement within with in the party. I think it's partly accounted for by a neat, um, defined Labour position, which has been very ambiguous. And also there is a sort of political calculation in, in that it does give the opportunity to find themselves in relation to the, to the government um, and give possible, possible victories in, in the elections. Um, Corbyn is criticised for this, but he's a politician. It shouldn't be too much surprise that he's acts politically sometimes. Yeah, naturally. I mean, he is presented in some respects as this uh, person who is a, a, a great upholder of his own internal values and, and fights down all attempts at political uh, swaying of of him. And and the reality is that. Uh, you 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 don't stay leader of the Labour Party unless you're, or any political party unless you are prepared to be pragmatic and change opinions as as the facts change. Yes, I mean he was. There was this sort of euphoria of the Brown Corbyn in the immediate period after after the two thousand and seventeen election. So I think what you've seen following that in autumn of two thousand seventeen, start of two thousand eighteen is the sort of prevalence of pragmatic politics. Do you think this has actually been somewhat useful for Theresa May because it gives her some someone to define herself against? Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I think that, that Theresa May and Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn have been very much defined, defined against, against each other as really since two, 2017. And 
They both did, in a way, they both did, in terms of numbers of votes, they, they both did rather well in, in, in the 2017 election. Um, obviously, Theresa May did less well in terms of the seats and losing majority. But in terms of the actual, actual vote share, they, 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 did, they did both well. It was very much the return of a two-party -part system. And I, I think with Jeremy Corbyn, that his personality and his image mobilise people and get those people to come out and vote him. But he also consolidates um, support against him and for the Conser Conservative Party, which may explain why the both parties have been hovering around 40% um, since la the last election in the opinion polls, despite what happens or any, anyone, either of them do in terms of the day-to-day -day politics of things. The opinion polls, of course, have been a, a horribly unreliable uh, in recent years, uh, certainly not just in the UK, but the UK election was a disaster for the opinion pollsters. What are they predicting for the upcoming local elections in May, and should we put any store in what they have to say? Um, I, I, I'm sort of... In terms of the whole question, the, wide, the wider question of opinion polls, I, I think there's, there's been a tendency to put too much um, emphasis on them. But I think what opinion polls do tend to show, even if you, di you don't believe the, the actual specifics of an opinion poll, they do tend to show trends. In, and, you know, they, they show the way things, things are moving. And, and this, this was very much the case in, in the June 2017 elections. Look at the, the, the opinion polls. It was possible to see that, that the Labour Party vote was was gaining 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 ground in the run-up. Therefore, it shouldn't be too much um, of a surprise on poll on election night when the Conservatives lost lost some seats or lost their, their majority. That's uh, to the specifics of the local for three local elections, which are very much the next big te electoral test. There's a wide range range of elections across across the country. Um, but there's been a specific emphasis on, on London, where, where local elections are taking place. Now, London's, um, in, even in normal circumstances, London is an area which tends overall to, to, to vote Labour. Um, in 2015, when the Labour Party, Party did badly, they did less badly than in, in, in London. And the opinion polls are indicating that this may be a bad election for, for the Conservatives even in places such as Wandsworth and Westminster, which have been flagship conservative local local councils, there's evidence that some of the messages which have been very effective for the conservatives in previous years are not working so well this this time round. And it may be that Brexit is it will be a, a factor in that, London being an area which voted very strongly over most of its this area in favour of remaining in the EU. Do you think, I mean, that's certainly the case in London, and, and it's only been Boris Johnson who's managed to buck the trend in London, certainly uh, in recent years. But the flip side to that, the corollary to that, is that the Conservative Party presumably can then campaign in places where the Labour Party is strong in the north northeast of England, and tell them Corbyn is abandoning you on Brexit. He is planning to capitulate to Brussels. Only the Conservatives will defend you and your vote in the European referendum. Do you think that's going to have impact? That might have some, some impact. Um, 
this was very much the strategy followed by the Conservative Party in the 2017 elections, the Northern strategy, um, targeting voters in the Midlands and the North who either voted for UKIP previously or were, were Labour voters who voted Leave. And it was a strategy which works to an extent that there are, there are constituencies where you had a strong Leave vote, where there, where there was an increase in, in the Conservative vote. But it w didn't work as well as people had expected it to work. It wasn't the decisive, um, didn't give the Conservatives a decisive break who they expected to get in fact. But far from it. So, but presumably the difference here now is that whereas they thought they could trust Jeremy Corbyn on Brexit, now the Conservatives can say he, he's planning to capitulate to Brussels, so you better vote for us. We're the only real party of Brexit standing. I mean, that might be the, that might be, might be the case. I mean, the, I've not seen um, any sort of polling evidence that... Not seen much putting evidence at the moment which would in indicate that, but certainly that's a line I've seen some of the newspapers and some politicians. Certainly be interesting. Rob, can we move on to talk about Germany and Serbia uh, and Russia a, a bit in the, in the last 10, 15 minutes that we have? So to talk about Germany, we've got a government, uh, or at least we're getting towards a government. There's a deal done with the SDP to stay in power, SPD rather. Um, how, how has this gone down with the CDU? Angela Merkel gained the support of the party party for the deal, um, but I think there was initially some dissatisfaction amongst the CDU. It very much felt that while she had preserved her own position within in the government and for some of, some of her close allies, um, the, the CDU as a party paid, paid a very heavy price um, in terms of losing the finance ministry to, to, to the SPD. As a sense of the CDU got a, got a bad deal, they ceded a lot, lot of ground, and that bad deal, that, that's a, very, what was given to the SPD, wasn't justified when you look at the sort of how the votes went in, in, the, in the previous year, years, years election. It kind of looked as if although Andrew Merkel was, was hanging, hanging on there um, despite the results of the election. I think while there was dissatisfaction for those, those re reasons, I think at the end of the day, she did manage to get support, at least for now, for the deal which she's done. And the um, SDP, Schultz, did pretty well in managing to get, what was it, 62% of the party membership supporting the new uh, government? Yes, he, he, he did. Um, I mean, there was a sort of grassroots attempt to mobilise against against it. Particularly from the youth the wing, end, I understand. Yes, the, the youth wing was particularly strong, strong in that respect. Um, and so the, the, the SPD um, agreed to, to support in the end. And there was, although they got a good, good deal, so in a way that was that was an incentive for them to buy into the deal. On the on the other hand, counting against that. Their opinion poll ratings are continue to look, look bad, and those people arguing against it was, was that they would argue that they suffered from work with the CDU, and if that was a mistake, then they shouldn't go go on repeating that same same mistake again. Usually, when parties lose elections, they go off with their tail between the legs, have a bit of a look at what they're doing, and try to regroup and reassess their policies and their leadership and so on. 
And the SPD have basically cancelled that process by going back into government as a as a you know a partner that may have scored the finance ministry but is very much diminished as a political party. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the SPD wanted to do. That that, that was their, their sort of plan. Um, they they saw themselves having they sort of suffered the consequences of the Grand Coalition, and they wanted to go off and someone else could be um, in in the government with the CDU's Jamaica Coalition with the Three Democrats and the, and the Greens. But they got some pushed back into into, into be, being in, in government. And I think there must be some people in the SPD who, looking at the opinion polls. Where there was one recent opinion poll last last week, which put the SPD on 15.5% behind the AFD on 16%. Wow, that's, I mean that's ma- be, that's massive, isn't it? Yeah, I and mean, people have got to be. The, I mean, this, this is the party of Willie. This is the party of Willie Brandt. That is yes, well, you know, the party of government, the natural party of government. That that is now shrinking. That is now behind. This upstart, uh, certainly anti-immigration party, we can talk about whether they're a far right party, as they describe. Um, but what do you think the consequences of that for the SPD? Do you think they will get any kind of boost from doing something in the national interest, going into government against their will, and people think, well, fine, they're, they're trying to keep the show on the road, we, we should give them a bit of credit for that. I think some, some. I mean, if they can show that, if they can use their, their government position to show that they're they're in control, that they're, they're, they've got sort of um, gravitas in and of government. But on the on the other hand, they you know they, if they didn't benefit before, it's not entirely so as to how they will how they will um, benefit the second time time around. And I, I think those those people in the SPD who support the, the coalition have emphasised that they're going to be able to be opted to push through policies in terms of the environment, in terms of solidarity. Rob, the Belgrade um, elections took place last Sunday. Were they important? Yes, in terms of, in terms of what was going, going, going on, in, on in Serbia. Um, they were an opportunity for the ruling party to show that it continued, had its continued dominance of, of the political scene. And also an opportunity for the opposition, because if the opposition were going to be successful against the governing party, the Serbian Progressive Party, anywhere that should have been in Belgrade, the capital city, but there's also been a lot of civic organisation against the government at local, local level in terms of, sort of the um, Belgrade waterfront um, development, which has been a big um, organisation against that. So a, a major, major electoral test for both government and the opposition. And... And how did the SNS do? They 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 did very well. They they they, they got 46 percent of the vote um, uh, against against the opposition, which which were very divided and, and, and fragmented. How, okay, so the, who is the main opposition party? If SNS are the the I mean SNS are the formerly uh, nationalistic party who moderated their rhetoric, got into government. And now are well continue to be fairly popular, fairly pro-European. Yes, I mean that, that's that they, that's the situation. They they, they were nationalistic. They, they their leadership broke away from a hard right party. They and they they've now sort of got fairly strong um, electoral dominance over the political scene. You saw this in the 2016 parliamentary elections and the 2017 presidential elections where. Alexander Vucic was elected, formerly being Prime Minister, elected President of Serbia. 
Now, their electoral dominance has basically turned around the political scene in, in Serbia. What you saw in the local elections was a lot of the established opposition parties simply being marginalised and new groupings emerging. The main new opposition grouping was an alliance between the free citizens of, of Serbia led by Sasha Jankovic and the, the People's Party led by Bukjanovic, the former foreign minister, and with, with, with their mayoral candidates, Dragan Gilles, who and a form, had previously been a mayor from 2008 to 2012. And they, did, they didn't do massively well, they, they, but they, they, they did have a significant vote. They got 18.7% of the vote, um, which was not brilliant, but okay, it is a significant section. And I think they, I think they, what the important thing about them is they did okay because they worked together. They got several reasonably small parties together, some local personalities together, and they got a respectable vote. Do you, but are, are they coherent opposition? I mean, they're not a coherent opposition at the moment. They are a sort of slightly fragile coalition. I mean, the test for them will be to see whether they can work together in the period after the local elections, whether the example of what they've done will lead them, lead them to continue to cooperate. There's a free ride, effectively, for the government at the moment. No effective opposition. The uh, established opposition, where do they stand? I mean, I think this is, this is the other important feature of these elections in that the established opposition parties, like the Democratic Party, which in the 1990s had been the main opposition party, and then were fairly dominant in the government for the, in the period after um, the fall of Milosevic up, up until 2012. Essentially a, a social democrat style European party. Basically, yes. I mean, they were sort of, they, they were aligned to the left in European terms, but they were mainly really centrist, centre centrist part party. And they got they sort of disappeared off the electoral map as did a number of a number of other part parties. And I think apart from the you know I think the, again the, the kind of the lesson is the parties that did well with the in the opposition were those who cooperated. And they could have done better had a lot of lot of the other smaller parties who ran independently, um, not run independently but sort of given their votes to or or given their support to, to the, this, the coalition which has emerged. Um, for instance, you've got there's an NGO called Let's Not Drown Belgrade, which, is, which was formed around um, the opposition to the Belgrade waterfront development. Oh, right. And they got 3.6% of the vote, wow. which in, it, in, it, in itself is not much, but if you added that to the 18.7% that the coalition had got, then they, that start to look more, more significant. So I think that sort of what you take away from the election, from the election is yes, the governments are, are are very strong, almost hegemonic, but if the opposition cooperates and look coherent, then they can achieve things. There's often a tendency to serve opposition to blame the government for their failure, and that may be partly true, but also the Serbian opposition tends to fail because it fails to organise effectively. So a, a balkanisation of, of the opposition. Yes, it could be put that way, yes. <laughs> OK, let's move on to Russia. Um, now, who do you think is going to win the Russian election, Rob? Well, I rather suspect that Vladimir Putin will win the Russian election. Uh, I um, mean, it, it, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, the, the, this election is a joke. 
who has been the main opposition candidate and uh, are they running? Well, the main opposition has been Alexei Navalny. Um, but rather, um, rather convenient for Vladimir Putin, he has um, not, been, not been allowed to stand in the election, which in a, in a sense shows that Vladimir Putin is worried about them. If, if he thought Navalny was unimportant, then he wouldn't mind him running, having some meetings and gaining a few votes but making no impact. He knows he's not going to win, but he's, he's so insecure about the prospect of any challenge arising that he feels the need to crush it by the, by the courts. I, I, I think that's right. And I think um, it's indicative. I mean, a lot of if you some opinion polls in Russia that then Putin will, and say the number of people who turned up to his last election rally, which is mostly 130,000 people, then it, 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 that's a thing which projects strength. But the way he acts is like someone who's nervous and insecure. And then, in fact, in fact, weak, which rather te- leads me to believe that his his, stre- his apparent strength is really a rather rather weak edifice, and he doesn't really know how to how to handle the Balmy who's become a sort of internet presence and seems to be able to summon up supporters to go on demonstrations, not only in Moscow or St Petersburg, but all across the country. But 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 when you are paid by United Russia, when you are a uh, a paid employee, and you're told we're laying on a bus. You'll have a couple of bottles of vodka and a good lunch, and you'll be protesting for half an hour. If you want to keep your job, you're going to go and do it. I mean, laying on a um, a people's protest is is not difficult when you, uh, you 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 control who gets a job and who doesn't. I don't think Putin will be will be able to mobilise the support using the administrative methods that you, you've outlined there. Um, but I, I think what he, what he hasn't got the capacity to do is to deal with the, the structural problems of, of Russia. And also the fact that the, the, the discontent that Navalny has been able to mobilise and the interest in what in this, his, the internet products he's, he's doing, I think that's, that's something which the Russian government is less able to deal with with um, administrative methods. So they can only deal with that with real reform, and they can't reform because that will eat away at the way that the Putin's um, state is structured. What I would say uh, that you have in the Russian people is uh, certainly a scepticism about what the leaders are doing and a belief that everything is cooked up. Um, and this was quite beautifully illustrated when Putin talked about his... Uh, missiles that could go anywhere and could do anything and couldn't be stopped uh, and then laid on a presentation to support this and it turns out that he the the graphics came from a 2007 documentary <laughs> certainly not cutting edge stuff and of course the russians took great delight in this and had enormous fun on social media with this certainly something that wouldn't be tolerated in china now, do, do you think that um, that Putin will, after this uh, election, he will try to, to eradicate that weak spot of social media and try to make a more authoritarian, controlled web space such as the Chinese have? Certainly in the past, Putin has been good at, at using the, the internet. I mean, the internet can be... A methodology used by 
opposition to authoritarian governments. Authoritarian governments can be quite good at using the internet as well, and they've been able to play. Putin's been able to play a, a good game at manipulating the internet. And it, it may get to a point where um, he, he sort of feels that he's losing that. He's, he's no longer winning, and in fact lo losing. And that then he tur turns turns against um, against the internet and try, tries tries to control it, control it. Um, but yes, I, I, I think that he was. I think that his methodologies he's using to protect power may get more sharply authoritarian as it's clear he's, he's not winning, um, or not winning, winning as, he, as he had done. And the other point about, point about Russia, I think, is it's, he's, he has used the, sort of, the, the, the nationalist about Russia as a great, a great state, and he used this in, in Ukraine. But in mm. Ukraine, he's kind of ended up bogged down in, in the east of the country. And may, that may also happen in Syria as well. Um, and foreign wars kind of are good for maintaining popularity as long as their cost is not too high. Um, but that, and not certain that that will remain to be the case in, in Syria. Well, there's certainly uh, a lot of interesting events uh, this week. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for um, being with me on the podcast today. Now, if people need to find you online, uh, I understand you've just joined up to Twitter, a bit late to the party, but um, hopefully going to make up for that. Uh, what's, what's, your, what's your website? What's your Twitter details? Um, my website is rob, robthomasanalysis.com and Twitter is rob underscore thomas 1394. And, and presumably people can find you on Facebook as well. That's right. Yes, and and so the, your 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 website is uh, it, it's a blog about European politics. That's right. Yes, it's a blog about European European politics and covering covering a wide range of countries, and with occasional articles about countries outside Europe as well. Okay, Rob, thank you very much for talking to me today, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Great, thank you. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>